remix, Bob. Medicine remix, fam. Medicine remix. Next big thing, get on it now. Appreciate that, brother. Make the most of today. Thank you for listening. You're listening to Medicine Remixed. Support for today's Medicine Remix show comes from Climatap, Bold and Allergy. Has the congestion fighting power to relieve stuffy fixed mindsets and runny excuses. This formula also provides relief for your child's whining and bitching whenever they encounter difficulties in life. And it also comes in a great grape flavor that kids love. Climatap, grow your mindset to put your head down and climb. Available wherever good strategies are sold. Now, back to Remixing Medicine on Medicine Remix. Medicine Remix Nation, your boy Debunk of your Medicine Remix crew. And if you know me, you know there's very few things that I like as much as I like standing behind somebody in a line and listen to them talk about pseudoscience uh-huh. or completely wrong science or the epidemic that's really kind of spreading like wildfire. People loving to talk about shit they know nothing about. Bro. The reason I bring all this up is because in this episode, we're going to talk about something that it's a bit of an oldie but a goodie. And actually, I thought we had purged this one out of our scientific memory, but it's come back up. This episode is going to be about the tongue map. What? Did he say tongue map? Yes, that's what I said. The tongue map. For some of you, you might remember in grade school doing a little experiment where they put like sugar or something sour on your tongue and you were supposed to figure out which part of your tongue was able to best taste that flavor, right? And by the end, you were supposed to look at the tongue map that your teacher gave you and figure out, oh wow, they're right, sweet, I can taste it the most on the tip of my tongue. Bitter flavors, I can taste things better on the back of my tongue. And salty stuff was great on the sides of your tongue. Does anybody else remember this? Well, I'm sorry if you do remember it because it's all bullshit. I know, you already knew that. And for those of you that already knew this, we're not gonna bore you with a ton of it. But for those of you who didn't know this, which was the case of a good friend of mine who called me up and said, hey man, remember that time you went off on me about some shit about the tongue map and you told me it was wrong and da da da. But guess what? My kid just got sent home with an assignment from school. They're still using the tongue map, which was crazy for me to hear. Cause like I said, I thought we purged this out of our collective scientific memory. But it's still out there. Some teachers are hanging on to this. And I don't know if it's because it's fun and something to do with the kids and it'll shut them up for a while because it's kind of hard to talk and be wild when you're taste testing in class or whatever the case is. Yeah. But we need to get rid of this shit because it's wrong. And in talking about why it's wrong and in classic debunked fashion, I started exploring all kinds of other stuff. Went into MSG. Is it or isn't it toxic? And is it something you should be eating? Where the fuck did it come from? Yeah. And wine glasses why they're shaped the way they're shaped because i thought for a long time that i was just some sort of snob and was in my own head whenever i would drink wine out of a cup like a red cup i just never enjoyed it it tasted like shit and i always thought to myself man uh, it's just because 
because I associate wine with, you know, nice glasses and steaks and good company and stuff like that. I just never enjoyed wine just to drink wine. Uh-huh. Go over to somebody's party, they'd have wine, they got those red party cups, and I'd say, you know what, I'm going to go with the wine. And it tasted like shit. Yeah. And I'd always, in my own mind, kind of knock the host of the party, right? And they gave us some cheap-ass wine. I might have been wrong, and it might all have to do with the shape of the wine glass. Hold on. Let's not go overboard. Not all the shape of the wine glass. Some of you bastards gave me cheap wine. But I digress. So let's get into it. Some medicine remixed. The best I've been able to figure out, the origins of the tongue map date back to a German scientist named D.P. Hanig. H-A-N-I-G and a study that was published in 1901. And for all of you who listen to the podcast, let me Google that. Hit up Abby, because I wasn't able to find any information on this Hanning character, nor his research. The best I could find was he was a psychologist, and the study was published in 1901, and it was relatively small. He just took a bunch of people, subjectively gave them stuff on their tongue to eat, and they would report their findings. Nothing too crazy. However, I guess arbitrarily, his research was so impactful, maybe because it was the only research of its kind done to quantify the number of tastes that humans had. And it just became four based on his study and became the launching point for most studies done after that. Which again is really interesting because he didn't set out to study how many tastes that humans had. Instead, he was trying to figure out where on the tongue we were most sensitive to these four particular tastes. Nonetheless, in 1942, a psychologist by the name of Edwin Boring of Harvard picked up Hanig's ideas, the tongue map guy, and used them for his book, Sensation and Perception in the History of Experimental Psychology. And in that book, Boring took the data from Hanig's test and basically took all those answers and crunched them into calculable numbers and values and made graphs for those values. And the result were his own graphs that instead of showing what the data actually was saying, which was that some parts of the tongue might be a little more reactive to certain tastes, but nothing that was statistically significant. Instead, he interpreted it in a way that, on paper anyway, looked like some areas of the tongue were specialized for certain flavors. And that was the birth of the tongue map. Oh, okay. The remarkable thing is that this went unchallenged, essentially, in science until 1974, when a scientist named Virginia B. Collins, who was a PhD candidate, I believe, in psychology at the University of Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, published a paper titled Human Taste Response as a Function of Locus of Stimulation on the Tongue and Soft Palate in the Journal of Perception and Psychodynamics. And in this publication, she basically revisited all of Hanig's work and agreed with the overall point, which was, yes, there are variations in sensitivity to the four basic tastes around the tongue, but the variations were really small and really insignificant, i.e. it was bullshit. But yet still by this time, the word was out. People were believing the map, they were giving it to school kids, kids were doing experiments, everybody with a tongue and food available could have studied this themselves. 
but instead it persisted. Which, if I'm honest, I could see why this would happen. You know those 3D sort of pictures where you're supposed to stare at them for a while and, I don't know, cross your eyes and move the picture away and then some image is supposed to emerge? Do you guys remember these posters? Uh. I've never once been able to see what the fuck the object is. This is what I would do. Stand there, I'd wait for somebody to say like, oh yeah, it's a dinosaur. And then I would pretend to do it and say, oh yeah, it's a dinosaur. <laughs> I think that that's how the tongue map in that same way will persist if we don't put an end to these horrible school experiments. Talk to him. <laughs> but the interesting thing on top of all of this is that bad science like this can affect everyday things. And although I know that the wine glass itself has origins dating back to like the 18th century, that if you look at modern day wine glasses, particularly for red wines, they are sort of wider and barrel shaped at the bottom and they taper upward and the opening gets smaller. And it turns out that these are specifically designed for you to have to bring your face to the glass Whoa. and you have to kind of hold your face out, right? Your nose going into the glass and it sort of, again, tapers to deliver the wine to the front of the mouth. Um, and the idea again was to land on these sweet taste receptors and also because wine, red wines in particular, from what I understand, you can smell more of the alcohol in these wines. And that being the case, the bowl is wider and the glass is a little bigger for something like a Cabernet. And the idea is to sort of close in all those aromas from the wine so you're not overpowered by the smell of the alcohol and your nose has to go into it. It isn't like a big gulp cup, right? Where you can just kind of bring it to your face. Oh, big gulps, huh? All right. <laughs> and you know slumped in your chair and sip out of it like if you were drinking out of a red party cup like i was saying earlier wine felt different to me it tasted different it might have just been because in some weird way weaving this all back into the original tongue map they were designing these things to try to dump the wine on the front of the tongue so the entire experience is different so if you're used to incorporating all these flavors and these delivery systems and smells and you're at a backyard party and somebody pours you your favorite red wine in a shitty plastic cup it might be a different experience. Something to think about, I guess. Yeah. Now, the last thing that really surprised me was how little has actually been known about the sensation of taste. Because while things like sight and hearing tend to be at the forefront of what most people are exposed to in terms of development and science and those particular senses, taste kind of lags behind, in my opinion, in terms of popularity. Bro. But interestingly enough, it's probably one of the most profitable of the senses, right? Everybody's looking for that bomb new place to eat, that new restaurant, that new taste, that new drink, that new flavor. And not a lot has been known about it, scientifically anyway, in terms of the physiology. Matter of fact, this is the perfect time to talk about sort of an interesting turn that all of this took while I was researching this. If you think back to what we were talking about of the tongue map and the flavors that were then a consensus big four that was sweet, bitter, salty, and sour. For many years, it was just those four. One, two, three, and four. here more recently, there was a new taste acknowledged and that was umami. Some of you may have heard of that. Here in Western culture, it's referred more to in the scientific literature as savory. And the particular receptors for that flavor weren't even discovered until 1996, which is crazy to think about. Because the origin story of umami as a scientific term dates back to the early 1900s. And a gentleman named Kikune Akita was a Japanese chemist and 
Tokyo Imperial University professor of chemistry, and in 1908, legend goes, he uncovered the chemical basis for the taste he named umami, which I believe is a Japanese term that means the closest in English is delicious. Delicious! And it's become, like I said, savory. It became one of the five basic tastes along with what we mentioned. Yeah! And the story goes, in 1907 at the Tokyo Imperial University in Japan, the professor was eating dinner with his family when he suddenly stopped. Probably not as dramatic, but let's continue with the legend. Suddenly stopped because that day, the dashi broth in his soup was more delicious than normal. So he stirred it a couple more times and he realized, I got it. Hold up. Where's your mother? To which she replied, I don't know, is everything okay? Well, looking deeply into her eyes, he said, girl, this soup's so good, I wanna slap your mom. <laughs> that part's not true, obviously, he didn't say that. Well, no, you weren't there, I wasn't there, you don't know that, but I'm pretty sure he didn't say that. <laughs> But he realized the difference was the umami flavor from the addition of the kombu, which I believe is kelp that they had added to the soup. Now that he understood that the kombu was the source of that crazy flavor that was really hitting the spot, he decided to study the chemical composition of the kelp. And fast forward a little bit, he isolates the compound. Turns out it's glutamate. Then he wants to figure out, obviously, how he can commercialize this. So he wants to turn it into something that you can sprinkle on food. He comes up with the compound crystal mono sodium glutamate which is MSG. You know there are very few food additives that generate as much controversy as glutamate and I think this is an assault on the G's right? There's also our friend gluten. Anyway, glutamate. Now, I don't want to get too nerded out, but for those of you that care, MSG, mono, one, sodium, Na sodium, salt, right? When you think of sodium, you think of salt, uh, Na, and glutamate. And MSG is essentially the salt of the amino acid, glutamic acid. Oh, okay. And through a little bit of chemistry magic and some carboxyl groups losing a proton, you get glutamate. And glutamate itself is pretty abundant, not only in our bodies, it's a non-essential amino acid, meaning we can make it and we do make it ourselves, uh, primarily as a neurotransmitter in the brain, it's excitatory. But glutamate is also found in foods, all kinds of foods, which makes sense, being that we now know that there's a receptor on the tongue that's made to taste just that, glutamate. And again, it's found in all sorts of protein-rich foods, right? Like milk, veggies, fish, things like that. But interestingly enough, None of those have an effect on the receptors of the tongue unless it's free-form glutamic acid or glutamates. So even though this might exist in some foods, unless they're released from things that they're bound to, other proteins, they generally won't elicit that same umami taste. Unless, of course, some of these foods are processed, some of them are seasoned, ripened, aged, things like that. Cheeses come to mind. And also, a lot of these proteins can become hydrolyzed by heat, and that will release glutamates. Pretty interesting. Blood and there's something that makes sense to me there. Recently, I was at a restaurant, pretty fancy, schmancy restaurant, and we live right next to the Gulf. So they were bragging about how they had literally just caught a tuna from the ocean, brought it in, and they were serving it that day. And it literally had been like hours. Huh. So the chef was really hype about it, right? Holla, holla. He's like, you, you want to you go for the ahi? And I said, yeah, man, let's do an ahi steak. Yes, sir. So they brought it out, and he, you could see he was just really excited about it. Yeah! They serve it up, and I eat it, and he came back after to, you know, really pumped up. Man, how was it? I didn't have the heart to tell him. It's so good. It was okay. It tasted 
like water. It was just so bland. Ugh. And I couldn't figure out, I thought it was just me. I thought, who knows, man? Maybe I, I don't like it as much as I thought I did. Come to find out later that although it was, you know, very lightly seared, most sushi chefs age their tuna. What? Which was news to me because, I, you know, I, I don't know, in my own mind, I thought fresh, the fresher the better, right? If you can get it right out of the ocean and eat it. Uh. Nope. Most of the flavor from good sushi is from aged fish, which makes so much sense now after reading all of this stuff that a lot of that ripening process, that aging process can help release glutamate, which is that savory umami flavor. Anyway, just a side note. But again, some things have a lot of glutamate in them. Parmesan cheeses. Believe it or not. Whoa. So all that being said, there's glutamate in our bodies. We make it. It's part of a neurotransmitter system. Can be found naturally in foods. Matter of fact, a lot of free glutamate, the kind that excites the flavor centers on your tongue, exists in soy sauce, which is a, a fermented food product. So it's even in soy sauce. Yay, yay. Which is just a little ironic because if you're eating at a restaurant that says we don't add MSG, get extra MSG. That's because you add the MSG oh, in the form of soy sauce. It brings me back to what everybody's first thought is whenever we say MSG. Most people think of, say it, say it, come on, say it. I know it's all politically correct now and everything's charged and you're gonna feel racist. Say it, Chinese food. <gasps> Shouldn't feel racist, it's ridiculous. But, but nonetheless, Chinese food, right? But of course the question is, why Chinese food? Yeah. And the story behind that is an interesting one. Would you believe if I told you that this all started after a guy wrote a letter to a medical journal in April of 1968 saying, hey man, every time I eat at a Chinese restaurant that serves, in particular, northern Chinese food, and I'd be lying if I told you I knew the difference, anytime I eat that food within 20 minutes, I start getting tingling in my fingers, I get a tingling in my neck, I get numbness, I get general weakness and palpitations and all these things. And then he offers a couple of explanations of what he thinks might be the cause. Uh -huh. He talks about how maybe it's the amount of cooking wine that they put into the food that he says can feel like the effects of alcohol. Yeah. He says maybe it's because they use a lot of salt and it might cause me to become hypernatremic. Or maybe it's the monosodium glutamate, which may make the symptoms more acute. He goes on to say that more research needs to be done, but where he works in Maryland, there's not a lot of resources. So maybe somebody in the medical community might take him up on pursuing this as a potential research project. Now, some of the key things to take away from this particular letter that he wrote in, it was in the correspondence section of the New England Journal of Medicine, which is a very prestigious medical journal. Well, from the article, it's interesting because it stirred up a lot of racial stuff. The gentleman's name who wrote in was a senior research investigator, and it's listed as the National Biomedical Research Foundation, Silver Spring, Maryland. The gentleman's name is Robert Ho Man Walk. 
K-W-O-K-M-D. You can find the letter online. In the letter, he doesn't say specifically, I'm Chinese. He does open the letter by saying, for several years since I've been in this country, so immigrant. And when later in the letter, he refers to other people who have actually had the same symptoms, he refers to other Chinese friends of his, both medical and non-medical people, but all well-educated. Uh. The fuck does that mean? And why is that part in there? <laughs> It's funny because later in subsequent publications of the same journal, people wrote in and really questioned the integrity of the journal, basically saying, you guys need to quit fucking around. If you guys want to have any integrity, you should admit that this was all a joke, a very bad joke, and you should give us the actual name of the person who wrote this article. And maybe a lesser known fact that this particular correspondence section of the New England Journal of Medicine was supposedly known in the medical community for its sort of tongue-in-cheek discussions, almost a comic relief part of the journal. For an otherwise dry medical journal, Boring. this was a part where people would write in with insider jokes, if you will, about the absurdity of something or a proposed ideology or how trivial something was. You know, it'd be like writing in to talk about a new phenomenon of jogger's nipple, <laughs> I think is one of them that I read. When you're out jogging, your shirt rubs up and down on your nipples and now this is a syndrome that they think should be considered for medical treatment. Seriously? It's a thing that actually does happen, but to publish it in this particular arena in a very well-respected medical journal, that's not going to make the front page, nor should it. But again, it was sort of a how many absurdities can you cram into one little paragraph for a write-in letter? And this Chinese restaurant syndrome, as it was dubbed in the actual article, Worst. was being sort of mocked oh, and treated as one of these almost satire things. In fact, one of the responses to Walk's letter was a guy named William C. Porter Jr., MD, and openly espoused his disbelief in both Walk's message and identity. And he went on to claim that he believed this letter was just a big gag designed to amuse people and to amuse other nerds. He even went as far as to pun on Walk's name throughout his argument. Oh no, he said. And would refer to him as Dr. Human Croc. <gasps> as in Croc and Crockpot. Oh no, he didn't just say oh no, he didn't. And he'd demand that the New England Journal of Medicine out whoever the original author was and said that Homan Walk was imaginary. Shit. And to take a quote, he says, some of your less, quote, crocky readers would like to congratulate him along with yourselves as the perpetrators of such pertinent good humor. So there was resistance and there was people who felt this was a racially charged, racially motivated letter in a journal that was supposed to be disguised by high level intelligent humor. And so even within its own readership, there was a lot of people upset about what this was implying. And, you know, even in the letter, Dr. Walk, if he was real, which to be honest, I can't believe somebody hasn't went and researched the institution that he lists. I did. I mean, I didn't research it, but I just looked to see if I could find anything under that name at that institution. And obviously I didn't find anything, but it, it doesn't seem like it'd be that hard. But nonetheless, it was out. This was the thing. And in that actual correspondence letter, he talks about the sensations felt similar to his acetylsalicylic acid allergy that he has. So he was talking about these potential side effects, one of which he says might be MSG felt similar to the adverse reaction he has to aspirin, which is kind of interesting tidbit to throw in there. And you have to remember that at the time, there was still a lot of politically charged topics and conversations and feelings about foreigners coming into this country and establishing businesses. It's very interesting because the 
ripple effect from this one letter is credited with kind of changing the landscape of Chinese food and Chinese restaurants. Most Chinese restaurants now will have, you know, no MSG signs out. The irony is that at this particular time, when this letter was written, MSG had been in the food supply in Canada for something like 20 years. And obviously a lot longer than that in China uh, and in Japan. And those people weren't reporting waking up with, you know, headaches and all these other issues that people would later report. And chips, you know, anything you eat now, if you look at a label and it says smoke flavor, that's MSG. I mean, it's pretty ubiquitous. So it was interesting that the Chinese part, Chinese food syndrome, people argued that that was blatantly picked above other names Ew. because there's alternative names to this. Hot dog headaches is another one I've heard what? because of the MSG and the smoked meat flavor in hot dogs, but I don't hear people throwing that one around all that much, <laughs> really. Um, so it was interesting how cultural identity was woven into this and how it sort of forced a lot of people within the industry to kind of change up their menus and make it more Americanized. They didn't want people to think that their food was terribly different, but the juice was loose and people were on it. Everybody had theories, everybody had me too's. This was the original hashtag, me too. Everybody was coming up with allergies and symptoms related to, had to be the MSG man, had to be. And people wanted studies, people were willing to do studies, it was a hot topic. Science loves it when they can make their way into pop culture because concepts, ideas, things spread like wildfire and most people are bored by science. Boring the nitty gritty science. So if you can get something out there that will capture the public's attention, it's a good time to strike for funding, things like that. People can rise to prominence in the public eye. But there wasn't really a whole lot of data until there was. So is MSG bad for me or not, man? Well, and I hate that I would have to preface this, but you should always do your own research. Yeah, I'm telling Bob. And our job is to try to make it a little easier and to try to guide you and where to look. But here's what we found. So in 1958, the FDA designated MSG as a quote, generally recognized safe substance. And in doing so, they did that along with proving other stuff such as salt, vinegar, baking powder. Now, that was in 1958. So it makes sense that once you put that statement out there, somebody's probably gonna do some research and it's most likely the one that's gonna reach the news is gonna be the one that directly challenges the FDA statement, which I get it. I'm not implying anything. I'm just saying that's what makes the news most time right if it bleeds it leads sort of thing so in the 60s there was a doctor john only i believe last name is spelled o-l-n-e-y and he was at washington university and he published information showing that high dose msg may adversely affect brain function people freak the fuck out i would have too because in his research he showed the possibility that msg induced brain lesions and this study was done in rodents in mice in one of the studies, he showed that a single dose of MSG could cause brain lesions within hours of actually giving it. Whoa. Now, here's the catch. He was giving whopping doses of MSG. Not only was he giving whopping doses, he was actually giving this to newborn rodents. Oh, God hitting him with whopping doses. And he was doing this by injecting it with a syringe, like direct injection into the blood supply, which bypasses a lot of stuff. Breakdown in the gut, when you eat things, there's a lot of enzymes and a lot of other digestive processes that go on instead of just mainlining it into somebody's veins. And on top of that, if he didn't inject it, they were force fed. So, I mean, I guess the takeaway from that is he did in fact show possibly a link between MSG and brain health. But again, he wasn't doing it in a way that represented the way 
humans consumed MSG, uh-uh. nor did he do it in a way that reflected the amount of MSG that people consumed. So people freaked out, lots of other studies were done, and fortunately or unfortunately for him, a lot of his results couldn't even be duplicated. So most of them couldn't be duplicated. Some, I believe, did duplicate some of the findings, but it was with, again, heroic doses of this MSG. So I'm not saying like five times more than what safe human consumption has been deemed. It was more like 5,000 times the amount that was deemed safe for humans. So, I mean, I guess if you want to stick to the facts there, yeah. There might be a link between MSG and brain damage, but it's a shit ton of MSG that unless you were trying to get brain damage, you would never consume that much. From there, lots of studies were done again and again and again. And a lot of times they were more appropriate. You know, they were lower doses. Still, a lot of them were giving something like 200 times the now generally accepted 3000 milligrams per day. And to just put this all in context, the amount of MSG that was required to produce those brain or neurotoxicity in the early study in the 60s when that guy was given just massive doses to these rodents the equivalent for what was found was that the amount needed for neurotoxicity was about 3200 milligrams per kilogram of body weight so some quick math i weigh 200 pounds convert that to kilograms that's about 90 kilos and the amount of msg i would need to consume based on those studies to produce brain damage would be somewhere around 270,000 milligrams. That's a lot. (laughs) On top of that, if you really scrutinize a lot of these studies, the way people were getting the MSG was a little wonky. A lot of them, most of them, the MSG administered was not actually in food. It was in beverages and drinks, which if you're trying to make a mask double blind study, it's hard to hide a wonky taste of a whole bunch of MSG in a drink. But that's what they were doing. And the doses were always high and again the results were just really inconsistent a lot of them again would show things like headaches and mostly gi upset stomach upset at these higher doses specifically and more commonly whenever msg was given in a drink but to me the most important thing to point out here is that a lot of these studies were very small i'm talking somewhere like 10 patients to 40 patients it's not a whole lot of people so something to keep in mind from here, the argument started getting a bit more technical. People talking about, you know, free-form glutamate and MSG not being the same thing as glutamate found naturally in food, which is true. If glutamate is bound to other proteins, it doesn't get into your bloodstream. The free-form glutamate is easier to absorb in the gut and therefore get into the body. But even when you look at that research, eating a whole lot of glutamate doesn't tend to significantly impact the level in the blood. So there's kind of an argument that well yeah you could take a whole bunch of it in but it doesn't really drive up glutamate in the bloodstream and of course if it's in the bloodstream at all people worry that if you're pregnant or breastfeeding that the baby would get increased amounts of glutamate and even then there was research done on primates and they didn't find that to be true baby baby so not a whole lot to stand on there in terms of the available evidence but i still don't know if i'd go around recommending people to be taking in a whole lot of msg while they were pregnant right it's hard to do those kind of studies on humans 
humans because that's unethical to expose you know a baby to a potential toxin again the research in primates doesn't show that a whole lot of things can even get through that placental barrier so you know their recommendation is that there's nothing to worry about my personal recommendation is avoid it if you can talk to them as much as i hate to go back to it everything has to be considered specific to the individual and again peanuts kill some people God, uh, God, uh. should we run around banning peanuts uh no we shouldn't people who are allergic to peanuts shouldn't eat peanuts I, I, but again, even the amount of people allergic to peanuts is very, very low. And yes, if you're one of them who has a fatal reaction to it, well, yeah, I'd want to keep you safe. But if you've been reading anything about peanut allergies, not to get into a whole separate thing, a lot of this is being refuted in the sense that the argument being early exposure to peanuts is what people should have to avoid developing a peanut allergy as an adult or as a young adult or as a young child. And there's whole bunch of interesting stuff where they're like micro dosing people with peanuts like I'm talking little crumbles of peanuts a little bit every day to build up this tolerance which is super interesting but I bring that up only to point out that people vary a lot in certain cases and somebody might just have a sensitivity to glutamate or to MSG as we're talking about and you know that's something to be sensitive to best way to do it is to avoid it for a little while and see how you do without it around but the thing to remember is that to avoid it you really got to know where it's at and in order to know that you got to know what it's called and the number of names this stuff can be listed under is surprising i mean i'm talking anything hydrolyzed right so vegetable oil right canola oil corn oil anything hydrolyzed on the label other things it's called is textured protein uh, soy protein isolate whey protein isolate um yeast nutrient names of other ingredients that often contain or can produce free glutamic acid or things listed as stock soy sauces in there protease pectin barley malt anything that's quote unquote ultra pasteurized so there's a whole lot of stuff um Okay, this is news to me. I guess my point is linking it all to Chinese food now in hindsight is kind of silly. Yeah. Again, bottom line, everybody's different. The majority of people don't have any problem with MSG. There's not a whole lot of good consistent evidence showing that MSG is the evil thing that it's been made out to be, other than those crazy studies where they were just bathing people in MSG and drinking it and pumping it into your <laughs> into your IV and all that shit. So again, do what you want with that information. I encourage you to do your own research. If you have any input for us, we're always happy to hear it. And again, no other place like this, damn it. Should we start marketing this as an online medical school? school. Reese, you think we can get accreditation for this? Hey, if Trump got his stupid Trump University thing going, which folded later because it was terrible and it stole from people. But I think Medicine Remix should do it the right way. What do you guys think? Anyway, if you haven't done it already, please go to your iTunes right now. You're holding your phone, right? You're staring at it. Go to your iTunes. Rate us. Anything less than five stars would be uncivilized. And leave a review. You may not know it, but you have no idea how much that helps. It helps us in so many ways. It makes it easier for us to get sponsors. It makes it easier for us to be pushed in terms of different platforms. If we can show that we actually have a following that responds in positive ways to our content. So in order to keep this going, we're asking you for help. So please like, subscribe, share. we got a Facebook page. Just type in Medicine Remix. Go there. It's verified. You'll know it's us. Follow us on Twitter. How are you guys not following us on Twitter? Food. Rude. Anyway, again, thank you so much for listening. This is Medicine Remixed. You're the best. Make a way over to iTunes. Give us a review. Love y'all. Peace.